Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain academics and certain comics into conversation. In honor of this being the spookiest month of the year, we are going to be looking at a couple of very spooky, very horrific, very scary comics this week, or maybe not so much. We'll talk about it. First, we're going to be looking at volume one of famed EC Comics' Vault of Horror from 1950. Um, various artists and writers are involved with that that you may have heard of, including Al Feldstein, Wally Wood, Alex Kurtzman, and Mary Severin. We are going to place that in conversation with Emily Carroll's 2014 collection of short stories, Through the Woods. We will also be featuring, as we always do, an academic review. This month, it will be Michael reviewing Kiana Whithead's 2019 book, so her recent book, Easy Comics, Race, Shock, and Social Protest. Along the way, we'll talk a bit about the history and mechanics of horror, intersections of gender and horror, and try to get to the bottom of why the EC Comics universe has so many dang werewolves, and why I'm so freaked out by Emily Carroll's invocation of piano key teeth. All of that and more, coming up. a postdoctoral fellow from Brock University. I'm joined on my right by Dr. Michael Hancock, instructor and scholar at the University of Waterloo. Our difficulty in describing our positions says a lot about the precarity of current academic employment, a conversation <laughs> for another time. And I'm joined on my left by uh, Dr. Andrew Demann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University, uh, an affiliate college of the University of Waterloo. As usual, we'll have an introduction to both of our texts before we start, um, beginning with Andrew introducing EC's Vault of Horror. Thank you. The EC Archives Vault of Horror Volume 1 is one of several compilation anthologies and reprints of the classic 1950s horror comics that EC was famous for, and later infamous for, much to the detriment of the comics industry as a whole. This hardcover collection covers the first six issues of Vault of Horror in their ghoulish entirety, featuring the work of iconic comics creators such as Wally Wood, Harvey Kurtzman, and my personal favorite, the man under the Vault Keeper's mask himself, Johnny Craig. Vault is the title that launched the EC lines to prominence, and while it doesn't display the same depth of social commentary that we see in other EC titles, such as shock suspense stories, it does vividly establish the macabre portrayal of bad people suffering comeuppance that would define the brand to some degree. And more importantly, it establishes the creative freedom and artistic empowerment that made EC so important within the comics industry. These stories haven't always aged well. They're cheesy in a way that undermines the atmospheric effects that they seem to be reaching for. But they do have a visceral quality to them, surfacing a series of darkly compelling human fixations, such as guilt and lust and shame, in ways that speak to some of the essential ways in which our own consciences can vex us. And maybe more interestingly, the stories frequently give voice to the kind of anxieties that a healthy imagination can engender. Questions like, what if I were accidentally cremated alive? Or what if I'm surrounded by werewolves become validated in ways that can set the mind spinning? I didn't feel afraid reading these stories, but I did think about them and frankly dream about them a lot thereafter. Thus, even today, I think a collection such as this can defy its reputation as a historical artifact and live on as stories that can still affect the right reader in some possibly profound ways. If that doesn't work for you, of course, Come slobber over the work of some of the finest cartoonists in history, rendering some kick-ass monsters. There's worse ways to spend an hour. Now we will have Michael giving us an intro to Emily Carroll's Through the Woods. Take it away, Michael. Let's start by talking a bit about the creator. Emily Carroll is a local artist, hailing from London, Ontario. She was originally trained in animation and started publishing comics online in 2010 to focus on horror and gothic material. She gained widespread attention with the Halloween release that year of is Face All Red, a piece which, at least in its original form, utilizes the infinite canvas spatial potential of webcomics. While still posting the original webcomic, Carol has also made contributions to a number of collections, including Explorer, The Mystery Boxes, Fairy Tale Comics, Creepy, and The Witching Hour. She collaborated with game developer Damien Summer to create the Yalik, and created illustrations that were used in the 2013 video game Gone Home. Carol has won a series of awards for her work, including the Doug Wright Award for Canadian Cartooning, the Joe Schuster Award for Outstanding Webcomics Creator, and an Ignatz Award, British Fantasy Award, and Eisner for her story collection Through the Woods. And it's Through the Woods we're here to discuss today. The collection consists of five short stories, as well as a brief introduction and conclusion. The introduction does an excellent 
job of establishing the tone of the stories as scary things read by a child in the dark. The conclusion, with its beautiful retelling of Little Red Riding Hood, reminds us that just because something looks like a fairy tale, it doesn't mean it will have a happy ending. Some of the stories are overt in their fairy tale roots. A Lady's Hands Are Cold is a variation of the Bluebeard story, as a new bride is figuratively and perhaps literally haunted by her husband's past bride. Our Neighbor's House reads like an allegory as three young girls face a bleak and lonely winter. And the aforementioned His Face All Red uses a fantastic and terrible beast as pretext for looking into the jealousy between two brothers. And while the two remaining stories are grounded a little more in a world like our own, My Friend Janna and The Nesting Place are, in my humble opinion, the scariest stories in the books, their additional familiarity making them even more terrifying. Carol makes exceptional use of the comic's mediums, telling her story with bright, vibrant colors, writing with her text directly onto the scene, and liberally using large, frequently silent panels to draw out the tension. However, the most effective technique may be the use of the gutters, the way Carol doesn't always tell us what's going on in these stories. We're left to fill in the details ourselves. The most horrific thing of all is what lurks in our imagination. So to get us started, we've talked a little bit about this on some previous podcasts, um, particularly the one where we did uh, Tomb of Dracula, but I thought it would be helpful for our listeners, those of them, those of our listeners who are not comic scholars, which is presumably most of them, um, to talk a little bit about the history of horror and comics and EC comics in particular. Um, the collection we're looking at today is from 1950, so before the implementation of the Comics Code that largely decimated EC with the exception of Mad Magazine. Andrew, as a comic scholar, you should be able to speak to this quite effectively. What was EC Comics? Why does it have the reputation that it does? Why was it the focus of the Senate investigation into juvenile delinquency that led to the Comics Code? Why EC? Why are we still talking about it? Why is it still getting released? All these comics still getting released in these prestige hardcover editions that we're now talking about on an academic comic book podcast. Uh, I think the... the the major reasons why EC Comics is so celebrated is a combination of um, the artistic talent that was on board mm -hmm. and the cultural phenomenon that it represents. So you've got artistry and history intersecting in important ways. And then, of course, the legacy of EC Comics, as you said, being the target, mm -hmm. um, like, like really directly mm -hmm. uh, of the initial comics code, which would like specifically reference EC titles as words that were forbidden from appearing mm -hmm. in the title of a, of a book. Um, I mean, there was, there was really no subtlety to it whatsoever. Uh, so EC Comics was originally um, educational comics, as many people know, uh, and um, made like a really, really quick turnaround to, instead of doing educational comics, doing kind of shocking horror comics. It was something that hadn't really been popularized in comics at that time. It certainly existed. Uh, but it became um, just a landmark moment in comics history. And the big thing with EC was they were giving their artists both license and credit. Mm -hmm. uh, which led to very innovative works uh, and, of course, um, led to, I mean, if you're a good artist, what's more important than being able to sign your name? Uh, so they were able to draw all the best young talent uh, during this particular era, which then thus accelerated the popularity and success of EC Comics. Uh, it's weird to think of something as a phenomenon that only lasted a small handful of years before it got shut down. Uh, and I think that legacy of being kind of infamous is a big and important part of why people still think so fondly uh, of EC Comics. Well, yeah, I want to get us to unpack that question a little bit because I have taught EC Comics before, but when I've taught them, it's been like a selection of some of the most famous stories that, you know, friends who study EC Comics specifically have pulled out for me. This is my first time of just reading through as a completist an entire issue-to-issue -issue collection of them. And do you think if you just handed this specific volume to someone, they would see that legacy I mean, at play? Or is that something where... That. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a weird relationship to these comics that I didn't know about. Okay. That I grew up with not these comics, mm -hmm. but the presenters. Oh, yeah, that I was going to say, please say the, the Tales from the Crypt TV show. Oh, yeah. Because it oh, terrified yeah. me as a kid because I'm a baby. There's a lot of, <laughs> I mean, a few different connections. I remember there was a children's novel line oh, based yeah. on the Crypt Keeper stories, yeah. which 
absolutely terrified me. Mm-hmm. I had friends who watched the TV show, which only played on cable late at night, mm-hmm. like the original live action TV show. Yeah, like show. I'm thinking of the cartoon. Yeah. That's why and I'm then, a baby. <laughs> I, yeah, I also saw the cartoon yeah. where the they really brought out the personality yeah. of the Crypt Keeper yeah. and the Vault Keeper. And like in that sense, even though I did not read these as previously or as a kid mm-hmm. certainly not when they came out mm-hmm. i still had this sense of experiencing a lot of these stories mm-hmm. or stories like this mm-hmm. as a kid and i think i think that's the way to experience them yeah 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 i definitely want to talk about the fan culture and sort of it being sort of kid and sort of like young reader specific in a lot of ways mm-hmm. yeah i mean the reason i'm pushing on it a little bit is just because i just wonder whether ec has kind of an outsized place in the history because mm-hmm. it's been taken up mm-hmm. as this lost cause you know like because it was destroyed by the comics code which you know we can talk about how much that was a direct result of them dominating the market and the other publishers wanting to take them down which is you know a more complicated industry argument but also um Gaines's self-representation at the hearing which you know the right. other comic mm-hmm. book publishers felt the need to sacrifice him because of his not super helpful presentation of himself as at the hearing do you want to speak to that a little bit Andrew because it's a story that sort of comic scholars we kind of know well but yeah. other people who don't know this might not have any idea what I'm talking about I, I think it's easily summarized um, um, Gaines was asked the question so William Gaines is, is the publisher of EC Comics at this time that's right um, they held up a cover of a woman with her head chopped off and the um, whatever they were the, the lawyer uh, said do you think this is appropriate material uh, and Gaines said, I think it's appropriate for a horror comic. Uh, kind of sassing them a little bit. Uh, and funny story, in the 1950s, sassing a Senate yeah. subcommittee had consequences. Uh, and as you said, um, part of it was the, the industry was a little bit jealous of their success as well and saw that Gaines had made himself vulnerable in the eyes of the yeah. public. Uh, so he became a bit of a, um, a sacrificial lamb in that sense. And, you know, there's all these other things of, like, he showed up to the hearing very nervous, was on pills, was sweating, you know, (laughs) like, there's just a lot of things that were going on with him at the time. And interesting story. So he inherited the company from his father, who had done the educational comics, things like picture stories of the Bible, and died in a boating accident. And it's got sort of this dark legacy in that sense, which I think is part of the mystique of EC Comics as well. Yeah, I think there's also the sort of legends of very talented comics illustrators mm-hmm. being suddenly out of work and yeah, turning to yeah. alcohol and drugs yeah. and the tragedy surrounding that also mm-hmm. sort of raises the esteem of EC Comics in I retrospect. So too. It's like a little bit of that like, you know, a rock star who dies young thing. Yeah. They don't have like a chance to become like sort of diminished in the public consciousness because I do find it interesting that when you read sort of histories that talk about EC, they don't really talk about that legacy of like Tales from the Crypt and mm-hmm. like the TV shows and like all of these things that when I've taught them, I've had students that have been familiar with those things, but it's not mentioned in like the intros to these reprinted EC comics in terms of part of their cultural legacy. Well, I think it gets a lot of attention through comic studies because it offers comic history that mm-hmm. doesn't revolve around the superhero. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Sure. If we're going to accept the proposition that EC comics were specifically targeted, and in a sense they were, um, what was it about these comics that was so threatening? You know, I mean, it's the horror, it's the violence, but EC Comics had a lot less of those things than many other comics that were being published at the time. So what was it about EC Comics that so alarmed parents, that so alarmed authority figures during this time? I think there's an indulgence to the way that EC does horror um, that I find very interesting. Um, It's sensationalistic, Mm -hmm. it's over the top, it's imaginative, and it's um, often very local. Uh, Again, the idea of Mm -hmm. the unseen terror that is in your community kind of thing. So so I thought, I think in that sense, you could see that EC EC Comics in general were were sort of subverting the American myth that Mm -hmm. was very much being constructed during this era. Uh, and a lot know. of crazy housewives in these comics. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah, there's some gender problems. Yeah, well, we're we gonna talk, talk about, about that. We're gonna talk about that. But at the very <laughs> least, you can read that charitably as being a like a subversion of like normative values of the era. Well, yeah, and I think most of the I don't want to even call them protagonists, like but main characters in easy mm-hmm. comics are objectively bad people. Yeah, uh, yeah. although like to justify their punishment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, th- there's a cool theory about that um, called the Superman Complex, uh, which is actually Frederick Verth, and yeah. we ended up shutting yeah. this all down. 
um, which basically said we have this desire to see um, bad people suffer for righteous reasons. Mm -hmm. So I, I think having these horrible, horrible, nightmarish things happen to human beings really only works if we set them up as, to some degree, deserving it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's always been one of the disturbing elements of certain types of horror for me. I mean, less so in the easy comics, only because they're so goofy. But we'll talk about that goofiness <laughs> a bit too. But what about the it's fan cheesy. culture, though? Because I mean, a number of scholars have talked about sort of the fact that they were inculcating this youth fan culture being part of what was threatening about these comics, and that's part of the subversion that's going on in these comics as well. I I think it says a lot that the foreword to this volume is written by R.L. Stein, yes. <laughs> who is I think you could make a very convincing argument that he was the equivalent, the '90s equivalent yeah. of these comics. Yeah. yeah, so funny to look back on the R.L. Stein era. I remember being like dared by friends to read them. Like I was like, oh my god, I'd probably get some pogs if I won. Or <laughs> and they're very similar in terms of storytelling. That it's so much more about the twist than any on mm. like deeper literary merit like the twilight the zone. number yeah the, the number of books that you have written where the final chapter is and then he woke up is more than zero <laughs> then maybe you're not a great writer in in the traditional sense i really want and you guys can point me towards it if there is i really want to read an essay on like a body horror and transformation in the rl stein line of books because those were always the ones that freaked me out and interested me most as a kid like there was like one where somebody transforms into a, bu a bumblebee and like how does that work and like lots of werewolves we're gonna get to the werewolves <laughs> i remember there being one where a boy transforms into his sister like not his actual sister but he becomes mm. a girl and it affects his psychology as well as his body. And it was really weird. Well, maybe, I mean, weird in like a good, bad way. Maybe a really relevant difference between Stein's approach and these book, these stories. Mm -hmm. I can't think of, maybe with one exception, I can't think of a lot of children in these stories. This, yeah, these are yeah, not books yeah. where written for kids these are not stories written for kids where there are kid point of view characters yeah for sure but you could argue that the adults we're seeing are childish sort of like a child's yeah, understanding absolutely. of what yeah, an adult is yeah and i think that's part of the appeal that yeah this is grown-up stuff mm -hmm. and the grown-ups are all secretly bad people yeah. doing bad which would things. be very appealing to a child yes, audience we, and we certainly get some grown-ups who are bad to the children <laughs> So what about what about this fan culture? What about the host, the horror hosts that we have in these mm. comics? Tell our listeners a little bit about that if they're not familiar with who the horror hosts are. We have is it the the ghoul in this one? Uh, uh, the vault keeper. keeper. The vault keeper. Sorry, the yeah. Keeper and there's, the witch. There's discussion yep. of ghouls a lot, so yeah. I'm getting off track. But yeah, so what does he bring to the comic? What's his function in the comic? Uh, it's a simple narrative framing device that creates mm -hmm. a sense of like cohesion and consistency from issue to issue. Um, but it also is a, a good way to like have the narrator in some ways personified mm -hmm. uh, and feel like you're being you know fed this story. So giving them a concrete identity, and again, speaking to the counterculture element, as a monster is telling you the story and, about yeah. monsters. And yeah. I think it serves to relieve tension to a degree because they're always very mocking. Yeah. All three of them indulge in just awful puns yep. constantly. <laughs> uh, I imagine the rivalry between them was used to artificially drive sales. Yeah, so there's this yeah, rivalry so. between, like, that they write into it between the Vault Keeper and the Crypt Keeper and the Old Witch, where, you know, they're all competing for readers across their various titles, and they talk about it in their monologues that open the issues. Despite there being no, like, real, at least I can't see any difference between the stories they're telling. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. very minor. But it's an antece antecedent to stan lee's kind of like approach mm. to fandom oh, yeah. within the marvel universe right i mean that's what i just kept thinking about as i'm reading this because what i enjoyed the most were the vault keeper introductions particularly the ongoing thing of like he hates the witch but she wants to be his girlfriend or doesn't and that's like this <laughs> ongoing plot and that was probably my favorite part of all of the comics yeah and there's a really nice connection there in terms of um what stan lee did with that to make it kind of different was mm -hmm. um he, he presented it as if it wasn't a fictional character yeah if it was yeah. as if it wasn't a witch or a monster but stan yeah. lee a, a, as he narrates marvel comics is a hundred percent a fictional mascot yeah it's a person who doesn't exist yeah he's the crypt keeper but he's stan lee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's a really nice evolution of this um as you said fan interaction mm -hmm. which is um so pivotal to the formation of comics culture mm -hmm. as we now know it right 
this is a culture that is very open to at least the appearance of dialogue with its fans. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. uh, that's one of the ways by which it operates. So we're seeing some of that in EC as well. And did you see? Do you see that as being one of the things parents, in particular, and and other authority figures were 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 really intimidated by with these comics? You know, that formation of a youth culture, and we could say counterculture in a way, in as much as you know, depending on how seriously we think these comics are subversive or not. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean, a lot of anthropologists or cultural anthropologists will talk about the 1950s as the invention mm-hmm. of the teenager. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a um, cultural artifact around which teenage culture can orient itself and thus become a culture that was you know, clearly perceived as threatening to, again, American norms and ideals at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's just like the more general aspect of if something becomes a phenomenon amongst teenagers that parents don't necessarily understand, it will absolutely be vilified and attacked mm-hmm. by the PTAs. Mm-hmm. We have two people in this room who've, who've taught a Harry Potter course, and the yeah. the backlash against Harry Potter is just ludicrous. Yeah, it's the most banned book in America right now. Yeah, yeah, which yeah, that is very. It does remind me of the backlash to to, to EC and a lot. Because I mean, when you read these things, they're so goofy. I mean, you brought yeah, up yep. the puns, right? You mm-hmm. know, I'm trying to find a good example, but I'm like, they're too bad to even be worth like talking about i mean you know now lie back in your grave and get a good grip on your nerves because we're about to begin a story i call voodoo vengeance and we are going to talk about the voodoo theme as a recurring one in these comics it is such a good thing that anna did the introduction for this one rather than me the puns would have we'd still be there we need an alternate take so and this might be a question that we'd have to look more into but ec they didn't start this kind of trend of like the horror anthology being introduced by a monstrous character or did they because there are a number of sort of horror series from the 50s that have sort of boris karlov Mm -hmm. introducing them that kind of thing so they didn't start this right it's just sort of their own take on this kind of tradition i I think this is a broader thing in comics in general where like the originator is never the actual originator yeah it's the one who sort of perfects it and becomes famous yeah, for it. And yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Yeah, and the, the one that people remember gets gets remembered as the originator. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about Emily Carroll. I know we're putting it aside for the moment just because I, I feel like it's sort of important to talk about sort of the historical context first a little bit. But what did you make of the nature of the fan letters in these comics? Because we get those included in this anthology, which I thought was really interesting because these kind of anthologies don't always include the fan letters, mm-hmm. but they did here. And one of the things I noticed that was interesting is that the first group of fan letters in the in the first issue of this set, they're all by women. I know. All by girls. <laughs> they're all female names anyway. Do you think that that's an indication that there were a lot of female readers? Or do you think that this is like something... Because when we talk about fan letters, we always have to talk about they're chosen deliberately to kind of like enhance the self-image of the comic yeah. in various ways, it's right? Right. So like, what do we make of that? The fact that this first issue... All female names. I don't know. I, I, I can't imagine a publisher missed that. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what they might have been trying to do, I'm not sure. Like, like, were they aiming for a market that they think they didn't have yet? Or I were mean, they trying to brand themselves? If they are aiming for that market, you certainly don't see it in the stories themselves yeah. in any yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, part of, I wonder, like, there's so many different things that could be going on there, right? You know, advertising to girls that this is something you might be interested in if you're, like, looking over your brother's shoulder because, look, other girls are reading it. Mm-hmm. That can be effective. But also, I wonder if it's a big part of that subversiveness, like, to have, like, these young girls, like, be like, I love these horrible stories. Like, please write more. More blood, please. Like, that's almost part of the comic, you know? Like, that just seems like such a joke that EC Comics would enjoy. <laughs> These little girls that just, like, mm-hmm. want to see more more axes landing on more brains. Well, even, like, now with true pi- crime podcasts, mm-hmm. you hear from female My favorite murders that are, yeah, mm-hmm. that are like, we, <laughs> we felt like we weren't allowed to enjoy this as kids. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so there was a nice bit of um, um, gender subversion. Yeah, I want to talk about gender and horror more, but let's talk about Emily Carroll because that'll get us toward Mm. that question, I think, and sort of go back and compare some of the content there with EC. So I'll put this to you, Michael. What are some of the antecedents to Emily Carroll's collection? What is sort of the nature of some of these stories for listeners that that haven't read them? We've already had a brief introduction, but what are some of the things that she's drawing on to create the types of stories that she's telling? I think for me, the... The resonance that kind of came through with this set in particular most clearly was the fairy tale, but also the mm. 
revised fairy tale. Yeah. Even though this doesn't go as far into the direction of Eros as horror sometimes does and as Carol does in other places, uh, I felt like a thematic resonance with things like Angela Carter's yeah. fairy yeah. tale. Approach. Yeah, that occurred to me as well. Well, particularly when you showed me that other Emily Carroll yes. work. Which, is, yeah. Um, what was that one called? Uh, it'll be in my recommendation. Okay, again, okay, so okay. I'll keep anyway. going in anticipation for that. There's sexy killing cat ladies involved, mm-hmm. which is, you know, that'll keep you listening to the end of the pod. <laughs> so what are some of the other legacies that you can think of? I mean, American Gothic, something like that. Uh, would that be an important yeah, intertext um, for this? American Gothic. I read uh, Christina Doku uh, speaks on how some of especially the first story here, uh, that Our Neighbor's House reads very much like a lot of Canadian prairie literature in the sense that it's a big, desolate, cold space. As someone who's named after the mountain and the valley, true story, that occurred to me as well. (laughs) Yeah, and I grew up on a large amount of very depressing prairie literature. (laughs) What about um, Nathaniel Hawthorne? Yeah. Mm. Do you see that? That whole devil in the forest kind of thing? I see it. Um, I'm, my problem is I'm less familiar with yeah, Hawthorne, yeah, yeah. but I can see like Goodman Brown and um, certainly the one about the pumpkin hat. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. I know what you... you can tell I did not. An incident at Sleepy Hollow? Or the incident at Sleepy Hollow? See, my partner read it very recently. Like about Washington Irving. Oh, it's Washington yeah. Irving. Oh, God, of course I know that. It's like my yeah. friend's favorite. My friend travels to Sleepy Hollow every year for Halloween. It's like her favorite thing. But yeah, a strong, like, the short stories of the American Gothic right. have a resonance with these, particularly the ones that are set uh, in that kind of time period. There's some early 20th century occultism, mm-hmm. uh, obviously in the one about uh, two girls pretending to be occultists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's move a little bit to the relationship between gender and horror, and that'll maybe get us talking to some of the specifics of these stories a little bit, and we can go back and relate that back to right. EC as well. But um, in terms of so we would say that a lot of these stories, a lot of Carol's stories sort of reference a late 19th century, mm-hmm. early 20th century kind of context in terms of the type of horror that they're invoking. You know, we get sort of, you know, um, not not urban settings in these stories. We get a lot of sort of, you know, desolate snow escapes and stuff in these stories. I definitely, and you know, in terms of the, the dress of characters, mm-hmm. in terms of just sort of the milieu, it's sort of that context. Does that relate to kind of, you know, the role of gender in these stories at all? I mean, is there something about the role of women and girls in this place, in this time, that is sort of coming across here that she's finding very appealing to work with? I would say so, yeah. that These are very much stories about girls going through adolescence, yeah. for the most part. Yeah. And, you know, you can tell a story about, metaphorically, how these women are in circumstances that are very isolating yeah. and horrific. Yeah. I think the last story, the last full story, with the worms and the teeth. Yeah, great, let's talk uh, about that one. The Nesting mm. Place. Yeah. That is a story that's very much about horrific motherhood and uh, a, a main character who has lost her mother who is growing up without that influence and comes into contact with another character who's had a traumatic event in her adolescence hmm. and come out pretty monstrous as a result of it we have an interesting thing going on in that particular story too with you know a conflict between kind of country and city mm-hmm. you know and just in terms of you see that playing out directly um through the story i mean the way she convinces the monster not to eat her is effectively by telling her that she won't enjoy living in the city because uh-huh. the city will destroy her <laughs> right but I mean, also in terms of some of the fashion choices we have, kind of her brother with this very fashionable new girlfriend wearing a very flapper kind of esque mm-hmm. costume that sort of advertises her affiliation with modern trends, kind of coming up against this rural, you know, country space with all of its myths and legends and terrors, and and that being sort of an undercurrent of the story as well. So then I, we get sort of sort of that time period sort of being a factor. Well, let's talk about that story in particular and talk about those piano key teeth and talk about the uses of horror there. Because I want to get into some specifics. So <laughs> what is this story about? If you were to give us a synopsis of this story to give sort of our listeners an idea of the nature of some of these stories. Right. Uh, well, a girl has a semester home from college. Mm-hmm. And she goes to find that her her mother has died recently and her brother has married a woman that she hasn't met yet. So she goes to their country home and visits with them. 
and learns that there was this girl had some sort of traumatic incidents in the cave nearby. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, she's feeling kind of isolated and goes into the cave herself. And there she finds that the new uh, sister-in-law is infested by a monster, a monster that wears her skin Mm -hmm. and seeks to implant these monsters into our protagonist. And a lot of bodily possession in these stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, here's a little passage from this particular story. Um, But the worst kind of monster was the burrowing kind, the sort that crawled into you and made a home there, the sort you couldn't name, the sort you couldn't see, the monster that ate you alive from the inside out, with some very evocative imagery of sort Mm -hmm. of hands and grasping and (laughs) shadowy, spooky things. Some very classic gothic tropes there. Mm -hmm. Uh, His face all red gets into something similar in the sense of being replaced by a monster. Mm -hmm. The idea of the double, again, that works really well with adolescence, that you might look like you were before, but it's not you anymore, Mm -hmm. that you are forced to, if you're going to function in this world, you have to become something else. Mm -hmm. It's got a great sense of tension between um, normality or civility Mm -hmm. and the monsters by all these possession stories, because then you can still have them coexisting in the same space without having to confront the fact that there are monsters. It's always like one person knows it's a monster. And, you know, that tension of, like, is that person sane? Are they rational? Is this all yeah. in their head? Which we have an interesting werewolf EC story on that theme, which we'll get to. Just maybe less thoughtful than Carol's, but anyway. I love the uh, sister-in-law's body, the way it's so, like, mm. her skin is so ephemeral. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we, we need to talk about visuals. So expand on that a little bit. What do you mean about her skin being ephemeral, sort of in a... In a very it, it literal looks, sense. It's mm-hmm. uh, very pale yeah. and red, yeah. uh, which speaks to a lot of the protagonists in these stories. Mm-hmm. But also it has this level of translucence to yeah. it. it it's, there's really this idea that her flesh or her body is of a different kind than the yeah. other characters. Mm-hmm. And we even get it actually, I have a page open here, instead of being outlined in black, her body's outlined in white. Yeah. To make to that's where that kind of translucent effect I think is coming from. I mean, she has a very kind of well, well, well I'll get you to talk about the style, but I mean, it's she has a very her style is very simplified, but she mm-hmm. uses like techniques like that to write. Like does make her look like she's glowing just by putting that white outline, right? It's very evocative. This story in particular, the burrowing kind, I think is you can see an evolution in uh, Carol's work, especially uh, if you keep in mind that. Um, his face all red was, I think, her earliest in this collection. Okay. Mm. This is more detailed, I think, in general than most of the others. Although the uh, clairvoyant one has something along the has some things along the same lines, and this feels a little more grounded than the other stories. That it has a specific time and place. Yeah. In the way the others yeah. are a little more timeless. I think that's why I was sort of drawn to this story in particular. But um. Yeah, and it makes arguably, I I would argue, the horror more effective. That is, except for this, this could be an ordinary life. What are Carol's stories doing a little bit differently than some of the antecedents to them? And I mean, gender could certainly be a part Mm -hmm. of that. But um, let's get back to EC a little bit and the role of gender in some of those stories, which will kind of maybe highlight how gender is used a little bit differently in Carol's stories. How would you, Andrew, describe the ways that gender appears in some of the Vault of Horror comics that we read? Um, I, th- I think it's falling into a lot of traditions from that time. Like mm-hmm. We can see the treatment of women being actually very similar, strangely, to how they were treated in romance comics at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the perspective on what the modern American woman does in this time period is remarkably similar like you could easily port characters from one genre to the other Mm -hmm. Uh, and in both cases there's sort of an implied misogyny this idea that women are um, like femme fatale temptation sometimes Mm -hmm. uh, or innocent trophies or like the Pandora thing the source of mankind's downfall from Mm -hmm. an otherwise stable existence I think we're seeing a lot of that they don't have a ton of agency I guess I think there's one story in this entire set that has a female protagonist yeah and and that's that's what's true of EC down the line like like across every title there's not a lot of um, female viewpoint characters and when there are they're usually terrible manipulative conniving sort of stereotypes I mean that's how gender appears in the stories like on a plot level but in terms of having these women who are bad women who are murderous women who are you know not behaving correctly women you know like 
does that do anything subversive for us or not? I mean, these aren't ideal housewives we have in these stories. Is there a, like a value to that or is there not a value to that? Or because it falls into just so many like sexist tropes, like is that just overwhelming? The, the idea of these subversive, like literally subversive women, mm-hmm. women who are trying to game the system in order mm-hmm. to exploit it and manipulate the men in their lives, yeah. that's a stereotype. Yeah. But read the right way, yeah. it can be seen as kind of like a weirdly empowering yeah. stereotype. Well, I mean, I that's think, the problem of the femme fatale. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But so many of these women in particular are, even the bad women are generally subordinate to a man. Yeah. 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 And the way that they achieve power or agency, if they do is through manipulating a man. I mean, I, I've really enjoyed the story of the three cousins fighting over their inheritance. <laughs> uh, the woman gets a little more to do there just because she isn't like bound to one of the other cousins in that way. Yeah, and you didn't like that as much as King Lear. <laughs> <laughs> Was that in this? Oh, are you... <laughs> no, we're referring really, to King Lear in general. Really bad Shakespeare joke. I apologize. You're like, oh, was that one of the stories I'm not remembering? Yeah. I, I would believe it. I would believe that there's a version, that there's an EC Vault of Horrors where it's just like, we're going to just steal straight from Shakespeare for this one. Yeah, I'm pretty well, sure there yeah. are. I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure that makes it into a lot of the individual stories. But I mean, yeah, one of the things I kept thinking about, which is like a little bit off topic, but... <laughs> When my sister and I watch old movies, like she often says, see, now that woman is a dame. She's not a woman, she's a dame. And that's like different. And I don't mean dame like in a Dame Judy Dench kind of way, but like in a dame in yeah. the 1940s. <laughs> like the women in DC comics, they're dames. You know, they got like the thick eyebrows and the unmovable hairdos and the like cigarette hanging out the side of their mouth and uh, the gams for days. <laughs> That's the, the ladies we beautiful and deadly and like not taking no nonsense ladies. I, I which, do. Yeah, I do really love the image for the closing ish, image for one of the issues is um from the, the lighthouse story where it, that starts with the woman and the man she's having an affair with preparing to dump her husband's body. Mm-hmm. And the look on the woman's face, just like, oh, I can't believe I have to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like I was like wanting to like put agency onto these women in the story just because it seems like the story from their perspective would often be so interesting that that's not the story that we get. Well, we talked about antecedents with Carol a little bit because this will maybe get us back to the gender question as well. But um, what are some of the influences on EC then we talked just briefly about horror anthologies that had existed sort of in television before mm-hmm. but um what are some of the other influences how do we see sort of influences of other of other horror media genre other genres sort of being present in these texts i think there's a lot of hp lovecraft to be honest mm-hmm. and that might be giving them um, too much credit for yeah. their treatment of cosmic horror but i mean that also manifests in terms of hp lovecraft was very racist and misogynistic yeah. Uh, and those attitudes come across a little bit. But I, I think the idea of um, using the horror story as a vehicle for um, leaving you contemplating your own sense of, again, not being safe in the world. Mm-hmm. We talked about this with Tomb of Dracula. Uh, that's a very cosmic horror concept. That's a very H.P. Mm-hmm. Lovecraft concept. That, that's interesting. I didn't think of these in terms of cosmic horror so much. Mm-hmm. Although I do specifically, I think there's at least two that are from the idea of you're stuck in a time loop Mm -hmm. and that strikes me as a very cosmic thing so each of the sort of ec lines has Mm -hmm. like a little bit of a different feel like crime suspense stories is like a little bit different they have a slight brand associated with them it's a little bit more of a sci-fi influence to some of them and like some Mm -hmm. of them are more heavy on monsters and some of them are more heavy on crime right yeah Um, shock suspense stories was their big kind of political variation so what would you say, like, I mean, describe a couple of the stories from Vault of Horror for us, Andrew, so that like, listeners can get an idea of the kind of thing that we're talking about. What was one that stood out to you? Uh, I think, well, I really like the one Michael referenced, the, the idea of, um, you know, you're doing the thing for traditionally, like, like sin reasons, things that are against the norms in the society. You have, you, you've had an affair, now you got to get your husband out of the way. Uh, but then there's always this, like, like karmic retribution. 
uh, I think seems to be one of the more dominant themes in this. Again, the bad people being punished for um, righteous reasons. That's a major theme. My, my, my favorite is still the one where like everyone around you is a werewolf and you just didn't notice. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's such a 1950s thing. It, it's got that Cold War paranoia embroiled in it. Um, but it also has to me a lot of like early Philip K. Dick. Uh, if anyone's read early Philip K. Dick, mm-hmm. which is um, less metatextual and just more existentially terrifying. Uh, and you kind of can't trust anybody. Um, so I, I think it's it's all very atmospheric, but I think as much as the stories vary in terms of their plot, uh, you get very consistent characters. Again, kind of bad character. You get the basic relationship between Hubris and Nemesis. Uh, and then the most identifiable thing for EC for me, and I maybe argue for Emily Carroll as well, is um, atmosphere and tone. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. That's where you find things like just, just level, right? Like, like you don't see much variation in it at all. And I guess that's good if you're not looking for variation and you just kind of like the sensation that it's creating as a lot of um, readers obviously did um but maybe limiting as well well let's talk about that issue of repetition in these ec comics because that is one of the things that really stood out for me reading like six issues of vault of horror back to back did that repetition come across for you guys what were some examples of repetition that we saw in these comics well the low-hanging fruit is probably the repetition of werewolves yeah yeah i did want to get to the werewolf but also um i think every issue includes a werewolf yeah, story so each issue four. includes yeah. like yeah like about four individual stories mm-hmm. and um and so prose yeah a, a short prose piece yeah. as well the intro from the from the vault keeper and reanimated corpses obviously yeah mm-hmm. there's yeah. a big one that whole communion with the dead multiple voodoo stories i believe yeah yeah that's We'll that, that's weird that's, that's what zombies were back then I don't mm-hmm. know if our, our, our listeners are going to be familiar with that this is pre um, Night of the Living Dead mm-hmm. uh, so the zombie phenomenon which which was a phenomenon at this point was was very different and it was just like um, Haitian cults essentially um, bringing dead things to life in order to do work for them I've had scholars at conferences when I've pushed them on this issue tell me that zombies have nothing to do with race and I just have stared at them <laughs> incomprehendingly like not understanding how they could possibly Only make that argument if you ignore argument. And everything that came after it and before. Well, like, and literally the origins of the myth, too. I mean, you know, yeah. there are historical arguments about it being a myth, yeah, that it goes back to, to myths of plantations and slavery, um, which seems like an obvious connection. Um, <laughs> anyway. Um, there's repetition in the fact that some of these are just straight ripoffs of previously existing short stories. I was trying uh, to get us to that. The, the yeah. most dangerous game. Uh, there was that one. The collection ends with a voodoo version of the portrait of Dorian Gray. Mm-hmm. Well, in their science fiction line, and this is a famous anecdote, um, what ended up happening was they were ripping off Ray Bradbury's stories mm-hmm. again and again mm-hmm. and again. And Ray Bradbury, because he's kind of a badass, um, what he did to inform them of this, he just sent them a letter saying, um, I really like this story, but I think <laughs> you forgot to, to, to send me my check. <laughs> and they sent him a check. get from kind of like that repetition and like charitably borrowing from other stories um, to what is EC then and then what is Carol also kind of doing differently in terms of telling these kind of stories in a comic because essentially these stories are kind of just like borrowing things from other sort of horror and like Twilight Zone type like sci-fi things that had been already in existence at that time and kind of just doing it in comics which is the thing that people hadn't done before Right. right so and I mean I'm simplifying it there's creativity involved here as well but what is comics bringing to this you know how is the comics form used effectively or not in these ec comics can you think of any examples that really stood out to you yeah well i mean speaking more generally i I would just say the big things that comics are bringing to the table is one spectacle Mm -hmm. uh the ability to actually show the monster which a lot of people hold as detrimental to the yeah. quality of the horror but i think when you have that kind of macabre style horror uh which does emphasize i mean you mentioned it in terms of like body horror mm-hmm. that's where the visual becomes really interesting mm-hmm. and really useful mm-hmm. right uh, and then the other element that i think is is really relevant to ec and and certainly emily carroll i think emily carroll is really good at this actually uh, is closure uh coming back to you know your yeah. basic sort of yeah. scott mcleod like theories it's just the idea of that space in between the panels where you're forced to immerse yourself and construct the narrative gaps uh, and that makes you essentially a co-author, or as McLeod frames it, an accomplice. And I think that is like 
so crucial for horror specifically that you you are called on to fill in these gaps yourself and yeah. that's what brings the horror that the worst things you can imagine are brought into play yeah and i think ec leans into the spectacle like obviously they try to i mean again something as simple as reanimated corpses mm-hmm. there's a lot a good penciler can do with that mm-hmm. in order to make that worth staring at for a mm-hmm. long time which I think is kind of kind of interesting. Well, that gets us back to those issues of censorship, right? And the controversy of these comics, right? I mm-hmm. mean, it's both a function of how comics are thought of as like low culture that like they have the spectacular element, right? Because yeah. they're not because they're showing the monster. That's like what makes them bad. But it can right. be what it can be what makes them exciting too, right? Well, because they're they're doing away with those kind of like narrative conventions of restraint and just kind of putting it all out there right which can do yeah. different things or be good or bad and sometimes it is bad well i think it's a double standard you, you, yeah. look, at, you look at fine arts and you look at the number of um really famous paintings on gallery walls of like horrific massacres yeah, yeah. and stuff like that totally fine yeah uh, comics does it and they're accused of um overrepresenting or being sensationalistic mm-hmm. or salacious uh, and that's a double standard. But as I said, I really do enjoy that juxtaposition of the beautifully hideous thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that's, I mean, maybe that's lizard brain, maybe that's child brain coming back to the juvenilia. But I think Carol does it pretty well. Yeah. Sometimes too. And I, I really like that. I want to get to Carol, but I wanted to bring up just one specific example from the EC comics where I thought they did use horror very well and it's in the voodoo vengeance stories so Mm -hmm. this is the one where the guy has the doll of his wife and she's having an affair and uh, you know by hurting the doll he can hurt his wife and it kind of escalates to a point but what ends up happening is that he calls her out for being unfaithful and then she destroys the doll by throwing it in the fire so the last four panels of the comic are the doll crashing in the fire. We have a close-up of the doll melting in the fire. And then we have a close-up on the husband's face and just the words Sally just in black space above him, who's the wife's name. And the words themselves are bubbling and dripping. Mm-hmm. We don't see her mm-hmm. burning, but this is incredibly evocative. And I feel like it's doing yeah. both of the things you're talking about. It's sensational in that we get the dripping, bubbling body, but it's actually the doll's body. Right. And we get that dripping, bubbling evoked by the... Would that be like... It's almost a synesthesia the way it's written out mm-hmm. because of the bubbling of the letters right and yeah it's a cool prompt yeah but then it's also having the closure element right you have to picture yeah. a human being exactly exactly and the bubbles on the letters of him like exclaiming sally and you know even the tears coming down his face as well evokes the melting yep so like yeah i don't know i didn't think most of the stories in this anthology stood out to me as doing those things as effectively as this particular story. I agree. But, Quality yeah. really varies yeah. when you're going from like issue to issue and artist to artist in the EC archives. But and then when you do get a story like that, you're like, I get it. I get yeah. what people are talking about. This was a good one. Yeah. Despite the... Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we... <laughs> We could talk about the racial problems of sort of going to the well of voodoo so many times if you're interested in talking about that, although I think it's almost very simple that it's just completely appropriative and, you know, (laughs) using the other as like a horror trope, which is problematic for reasons. Yeah, and we should point out on the other side of that that EC is famous for um, challenging some of the racial barriers in comics, Um, sometimes in imperfect ways, but I mean... Our book review today of Keanu Whitehead's book is going to discuss... Um, so what about Emily Carroll then and style and Emily Carroll because that's going to be such a big thing to talk about and always with the problem of trying to describe comics on our podcast but how in general does her style kind of do this thing of like evoking sort of an atmosphere of horror like evoking what you discussed Andrew as just you know this, this like I cosmic terror maybe one of the sharpest contrasts with the EC is that EC always has only eight pages to tell their story. Yeah. They right. over-narrate it as yeah. far as they can. Uh, she frequently goes to no narration at all. Mm-hmm. And Carol is not afraid to really pace things out, mm-hmm. to slow things down, to use the panels as effectively as possible to convey the mood mm-hmm. of the story at hand. Yeah, there are a lot of like wordless pages in, in this anthology. I mean, sometimes I almost wish she'd slow down a little bit more, which is why mm. I keep coming back to, to this piano key teeth story. <laughs> like, it's 
sorry, the burrowing kind <laughs> is the one we're talking about. It's not the detail that stands out to me the most. But um, but yeah, because it is like paced a little bit more slowly. But um, how would how would we describe her style? Like, I mean, DC is very kind of or EC rather. Um, I'd say it's sort of like stiff and formal in some ways and especially mm-hmm. because we don't have hand uh, written uh, caption boxes and dialogue it's like uh, printed in those comics which is a particular look but how would you describe carol's style can i make an observation that's wrong about her style yeah, and you can sure. correct me michael i don't know why it feels like mixed medium to me yeah do you see that at all um, can you expand on that? So mixed mediums where they, like, they'll take entirely different things. So you'll have like a mm-hmm. painting and then you'll put like a lithograph on it and then you'll put like some uh, nice font typeface on it or something like that. I don't know why I get that aesthetic from a two-dimensional thing, but I kind of do. Well, I, I think I've seen in interviews her comment that the coloring in particular is a heavy... She does a lot of Photoshop and filtering. Uh, and I mean, the, the coloring plays like such a major part yeah. in what makes a Carol story work, even though she is also very effective when she does black and white stories. Yeah. Well, we've got this page open from The Burrowing Kind, which is okay. the reveal of the monster <laughs> for the first time. So, you know, it's essentially got all these like horror sound effects, like filling the background and a close-up view of the brother's new wife's um, deconstructed face. She's got red worms pouring out of her mouth and eye sockets, and then her eyes just big bulgy things coming out of her head with still like her human hair like on her deconstructed skull. If you want to freak someone out with this volume, this is absolutely <laughs> the page you can yeah, go to. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. But yeah, I mean, I see sort of some of what you're talking about there, Andrew, with a page like this. I mean, we have the very sort of scratchy handwritten script um, in the background. And I do sense those computer colors that you're talking mm. about, uh, Michael. But then also the juxtaposition of kind of like um, fine, clear lines and yeah. scratchy lines kind of within the same mm-hmm. image. It, it looks like different layers created yeah. with different tools yeah. overlaid. Yeah, which I mean, I again why. makes sense if she's using sort of like um, um, Photoshop to achieve some of these effects. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even just the way that that inherently will produce, you know, kind of these conflicts of the hand-drawn and the, and the computer manipulated, right? Which like comes across, but like I think in a deliberate way. Yeah. I mean, someone like, you know, Alex Maleev or something will like do that too, right? With the sort of like computer-generated collage backgrounds on like his superhero mm-hmm. artwork and stuff to create kind of some of those juxtapositions. Yeah, even Kirby realistically. Yeah, exactly. With some of Kirby collage art from from the 60s so we talked about gender like sort of on and off throughout the pod today as we often do but let's get into some of the specifics like a little bit more about andrew what is essentially problematic about the sort of visual representation of gender in in the ec comic books that we read we've talked a little bit about women are given a lot of agency but you know that can also be said of the male characters in these comics they're all horrible people who also have no agency but what about sort of the spectacularization of violence is maybe a problem when it intersects with gender in these comics yeah this is a weird place where like the senate hearings were were, i don't know less one-sided than we sometimes make them out to be as the senate being the bully kind of thing Um, but one of the things they specifically um, cited with regard to ec was that it was sensationalizing violence against women yeah uh, murderous violence against women and sometimes even sexual violence against women Uh, the violence is sexualized because of the way the women are represented yeah exactly and just the way that they're drawn like like most of the men in a lot of the ec comics line are um i don't want to use the word grotesque yeah i know i was gonna say unattractive but i was like that sounds bad too but i mean yeah we we can walk it back from the very complicated um, academic concept of grotesque they're not they ain't hunks Um, yeah and and then the women are all it's not clark gable the women kind of are though right they're rendered in this very pinup style and they're posed in very suggestive ways Uh, and it does seem like we've got that um, very frequently complained about association between um, specifically violence against women and the horror genre. Yeah. Uh, and like, like issues that we talk about with like slasher films and stuff like that, we can maybe find evidence of that in the EC archives as well. Well, I mean, yeah, that's what made me question kind of, you know, the presence of, of female named anyway, letter writers in a lot of the EC comics. And it, it wasn't just that first issue. You see yeah. uh, female named letter writers showing up in, in multiple of the issues, though it was just that first one that had all female names. But I mean, is horror as a genre gendered in a particular way? You know, like are women, you know, 
historically a part of that genre in a meaningful way? Are they not? Do we have to revise the genre in order to make them a part of it in a more meaningful way? No, it's and a good, been a it's a good question. question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the majority of um, protagonists that we see in certain genres of horror are, in fact, women. Yeah. And that's a place where women were getting work. Like, if you look at the 1970s, that's where female actresses were yeah, essentially is, coming from. Yeah. And this is certainly a very uh, deeply studied subject in mm-hmm. film studies. Yeah. Um, from women or men, women, and chainsaws. Uh, Carol, Carol Clover, I think, is the mm-hmm. one of the foundations there. That yeah, discussions around Final Girls, yeah. discussions around right. you know the monstrous woman, that kind of thing. Barbara Creed. Yeah, yeah. And so there's questions of exchange there. Um, what are those actresses or female characters giving up in order to get a starring role? Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes mm-hmm. that comes down to the quality of representation and mm-hmm. where their sort of um, representation is channeled towards, which, as we've already said, is, is often to a sort of sexual spectacle. Um, the horror director, Wes Craven, um, was once asked for um, how to make a horror film, and his answer was um, give them a bit of a scare and give them a heart on it. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Yeah. Uh, and we see that tradition. Um, we see it in EC. Um, we might even see Emily Carroll doing stuff with that uh, in Through the Woods. I, I don't know if you can, you can well, go that Well, let's turn far. to let's turn to Carol then, because we talked a little bit about some of her style and like a little bit about the significance mm-hmm. of all of the characters are all of the protagonist characters are female in this collection, except for uh, his face all red. Oh, okay, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. But, but majority female characters yeah. at the, at the mm-hmm. very least, and certainly those characters that have agency and are more sympathetic are female characters. Yeah, and again, that's something that comes out as a big difference with the EC comics, that mm-hmm. these are much more sympathetic characters yeah. that you do relate to. Yeah, with the exception, yeah, of that one story that has a male protagonist where he just basically kills well, his brother out of jealousy. Uh, I can say, I've taught mm-hmm. that one in class, and some students relate to that yeah. particular brother. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not a boy. That's not so No sister jealousy is just as bad, so I don't know what I'm talking about. Do you think that Emily Carroll, um, choosing the time period she's choosing, uh, do you think that like um, anxiety in terms of the place of women in society, especially when we talk about like yeah. the protagonist mm-hmm. not being believed, do you think the setting enhances that? Yeah, just in terms of I was of thinking the, about that earlier with our the American Gothic element. I think. In a, in a way, the last story speaks to that in a very interesting way. Yeah. Uh, it's a very brief, her conclusion. Um, it's a retelling of Little Red Riding Hood. And in terms of vulnerability, uh, the, the way it's framed is she's not going to grandmother's house. She is going from her mother's house to her father's house. Oh. Or maybe the other way around. I didn't catch that. And the vulnerability that she has been placed in because her parents aren't doing their role mm-hmm. is very mm-hmm. interesting uh, and I mean there's obviously some uh, gender issues implicit in the Little Red Riding Hood story there's a great one I love the great page in the the story too where it's well it's the last two page well the two out of the last three pages of, of this particular story where it's goodnight moon you know yes. reference with the striped curtains <laughs> and the moon in the sky and the I always found Goodnight Moon to be a very scary story, so I was happy to see that <laughs> here. I loved that book as a kid, but it was creepy as... Oh, I can swear on our podcast, creepy as fuck. <laughs> well, yeah, what... So, as a contrast with EC, is this sensationalistic violence against women in this comic? We do have women subjected to violence in, yes. in Carol's stories, I mean, but how is it different? Yeah, in one story, really dramatically directly. The, the wife gets sent over to the husband and the husband butchers her and he's going to do the same thing to the next one. Yeah. That's very EC-like. Yeah. As a I mean, so how is, that, it depicted, how is it depicted differently? Mm-hmm. Let's think about that story in particular. Um, that story is the one called... Uh, her hands... A Lady's Hands Are Cold. Yes. Which is That's a great a title. title. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the best title of the set, actually. But That is good. Um, so it's essentially a retelling of, of Bluebeard where, you know, this... Um... I think one of the ways that it shifts from sensationalization of violence against women is that the story, unlike a lot of tellings of Bluebeard, isn't really about the husband. Yeah, or at least he's, he's not centered in it. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. barely present. That it's much more about what the former bride went through and her anger mm-hmm. and rage, even if it's misdirected. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think to me just some of the... The evocative nature of her artwork, too. I mean, you know, lots of scenes of kind of, you know, 
the face of the new bride and sort of her reactions mm-hmm. to things, sort of following her subjectivity, mm-hmm. like as it weaves through the story, is like an important way of making the violence not sensationalistic. Yeah, it's very centered on her mm-hmm. and the color contrast. She's just a master of. It's oh, like it's so yeah. atmospheric. It's interesting yeah. that yeah, this one feels different than the other ones, even in terms of color. I'm not sure what it is but I got the sense it was a bit of a time period thing so yeah. referencing you know yeah. art and design of the time but maybe coming back to what we were saying before the thing I really liked about it and you, you touched on it there Anna was the um the idea that the woman sorry Michael touched on it, uh, the idea that the anger becomes misdirected because the the sort of tension in that story is whether the ghost is an ally or yeah. not mm-hmm. and it's not it's just yeah. it's just blind anger as a result of what's been done to it yeah and i thought that was an interesting kind of twist you know if we're going to like look at it from a feminist perspective right you would think if this is going to be whatever this is like a conventional rewriting of like you know a, a, a problematically gendered fairy tale that she would find the ghost of the previous murdered wife and they would like team up and take down mm-hmm. the husband yeah. or something, right? That is Absolutely. not what happens. Well, the ghost of the former and, wife tries to kill the new wife. And that marks a real difference with the EC comics. People mm-hmm. are punished in this story and sometimes, or in these stories, and sometimes they don't really deserve yeah. it. Right. Yeah, the violence a, is more random. Huge difference. Which is a lot more horrific. Yeah, 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 it's scarier. It is, it is. I mean, what does that do for us, that difference? No, I just attribute it again to the idea of the cosmic horror. Yeah. Um, the, the, the unknown and unpredictable and that which you should not try to understand. Yeah. I think it's a more modern view of horror too that yeah. it happens to the ordinary rather than someone who deserves it necessarily. Yeah, yeah. yeah just, again, you're not safe yeah. even by being a good yeah. person. You're not going to get plot armor or anything. And the illogicalness of it, the randomness of it, the fact mm-hmm. that there aren't winners and losers. Mm-hmm. Kiana Whitted's book, EC Comics, Race, Shock, and Social Protest, is part of the comics culture series published by Rutgers University Press, a series that, to paraphrase its own description, has set out to explore the artistic, historical, social, and cultural significance of comics in a variety of forms to audiences of comics scholars, comics fans, and casual readers who seek smart, critical engagement. And let me say up front that Whitted's book, judged on those criteria, is a unmitigated success. It's one of those rare academic works where I feel like I've really learned something and my preconceptions have been challenged, but without ever a sense that a more casual readership would be left behind. The book is four chapters long in addition to a brief introduction and a briefer conclusion, and each one of those chapters is packed full of useful information. The introduction sets up the book's main purpose, to critically investigate the preachies, the stories published by entertainment comics under Bill Gaines from 1950 to 1955, particularly in terms of how they used a comic medium to challenge preconceptions of race in America in the 1950s. As such, Witted establishes the stakes through a description of the anti-discrimination sci-fi story from 1953, Judgment Day, then proceeds to establish the context of EC more generally, starting with its founding under Gaines' father in 1944 and shifting into the transformation Gaines and lead editor Al Feldstein enacted, going from educational comics to entertainment comics, luring in readers with its horror, crime, fantasy, and science fiction stories. Chapter 1 then outlines the philosophy typically enacted in EC, including the precept that virtue does not have to triumph, and the use of captions to act as a sort of buffer of interpretation against the more lurid images. Witted demonstrates both principles with a story from an issue of shock suspense stories called The Whipping, and offers a concluding section that suggests the child readers of the time were more savvy and more diverse than EC critics and EC's editorial staff sometimes gave credit. Chapter 2 delves more deeply into the Preachy's approaches to race, starting with the 1952 story The Guilty. As Witted points to out the stark realism of such a story and the sharp contrast with, well, the books we read today about weird curses and ridiculous werewolves, The book establishes how rare positive depictions of black characters were up to this point, while still being critical of EC for not granting their character the agency to speak within the story. The ambiguity continues with an analysis of ingratitude set during the very recent Korean War and Perimeter, another war story, this time from the line's frontline combat title, wherein a white soldier risks his life to protect a black soldier. 
Chapter 3 further complicates this reading with a study of the story's affective dimensions, how they draw on the shame and pride of the white characters and implicate the white audience in their prejudices. Chapter 4 adds a comparative dimension to the study as Whitted returns to the science fiction stories of E.C. and contrasts Ellison's Invisible Man to the twist in Judgment Day, bookending her study with the story first in examined in the introduction. Uh, you might be wondering at this point what the study of E.C. Preachies has to do with the vault of horror we've been discussing, and the answer is, um, not a lot. Whitted's focus is on the social engagement that is largely absent in the line's horror comics. There's, there's a lot here that helped me understand the wider context E.C. was publishing in, and the typical strategies the editors used in the execution of image and text. And that's a big strength of the book. It's fairly common for a comic studies book to focus on context, stories, or visuals, but it's often done with the exclusion of one of these elements. Witted does an excellent job drawing out each story's relevance for the cultural moment of the 1950s and the methods by which the visuals enable the story, all without overstating EC's value or cultural significance and keeping in view the previous scholarly work on the subject. For the most part, the text can be read on its own or alongside the EC stories it refers to, though to get the absolute most out of the final chapter, reading The Invisible Man is probably a prerequisite. In terms of classroom use, I would wholeheartedly recommend assigning chapters of this book to a comics class along with the stories it refers to. What's more, this book has me convinced uh, not only that it helps reading these stories, but it convinced me that the stories are worth reading to begin with. And that just about gets us to the end, other than, as we've gotten in the habit of doing, providing some recommendations that may or may not be based on this month's <laughs> reading and discussion. Michael, I believe you're excited about your recommendation. Why don't you get us started? I, um, I would recommend another Emily Carroll work, When I Arrived at the Castle, uh, which is also horror, but really amps up the Eros element. Uh, it is about a cat girl and a vampiress uh, as lesbians and maybe monsters who are trying to eat each other. Excellent. And how about yourself, Andrew? Uh, I'm going to recommend um, um, Infidel. Uh, by Pornsuk Pichichote, uh, with art by Jose Villarubia. Uh, it is a flawed and not subtle, but very interesting metaphorical take on um, racism in post-9-11 America as rendered through um, a monstrous um, 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 ifrit thing. Very interesting kind of intersection of different symbols. I think the last time we did horror, so I'm not usually a big, like, horror person, and I think I recommended, like, old Universal movies the last time. This time, I'm going to recommend the Mexican version of that. Any of the Santo monster movies. Santo <laughs> Santo versus Dr. Death just came up on my phone. Santo versus the Wolfman is one that I've seen that was particularly good. Um, the Mexican version of the Wolfman has like a low-cut yellow shirt and many medallions. He's pretty <laughs> fabulous. Um, I like the more goofy horror. I like to have fun with my monsters, so that's what I'm recommending. Next month, we're going to take things in a slightly di different direction. I chose the text. So we are doing all She-Hulk all the time, um, comparing a couple of recent runs of She-Hulk series. We're going to talk about the She-Hulk series from 2004, just called She-Hulk, by Dan Slott with art by Juan Babilo, as well as Mariko Tamaki's uh, run from 2006. Um, that one is just called Hulk, actually, because Jen had inherited the title at that time. We're going to talk about the confusing of titles and continuity and such when we discuss She-Hulk, which often makes humor of those things. If you would like to reach out to us between episodes or about anything that you've heard on the podcast or for recommendations for future podcasts or just to chat or just to tell us about what you're reading, we're always happy to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at at three panel contrast so that's the number three panel contrast anyway that's it for now other than do a couple of thank yous thank yous to saint jerome's um, for the equipment that we used to record the podcast today and thank you for the games institute at the university of waterloo for the use of their space we'll see you in a month mm -hmm.